Finally, after several weeks of focusing our attention on the heavy matters set forth by the Apostle Paul in the ninth chapter of his letter to the Romans, we are approaching now the end of that chapter, and as I indicated last week, you can now take a deep breath and sigh of relief as we turn our attention to other matters beyond the weighty questions of election and predestination. So this evening, I'm going to begin reading at uh, verse 25 and reading through the end of chapter 9 and even with some ambition begin the first paragraph of chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. So I'd like to ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, that there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge." For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Let us pray. 
Again, our Lord, as we turn our attention to this text that has been delivered to us through the hand of your Apostle, who wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of Truth, we pray that we may plumb the depths and riches of what is set forth in this place, that we may rejoice more fully in the sweetness of your mercy and of your grace that this may give to each of us a renewed appreciation for the good news that comes to us in your gospel. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we look at the text that I've just read, I want to take just a moment of recapitulation. That Before we go forward, we look backward for a second, going back to the very beginning of this epistle where the apostle introduced to his readers the central theme of it, which is that righteousness of God by which God Himself is is not referring to God's inherent righteousness, but that righteousness that God makes available by faith. And so the grand theme of justification was introduced in the beginning of chapter 1. And we saw immediately after that an interruption of the announcement of the good news by Paul's declaring that the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then Paul began to explain why people are exposed to the wrath of God, and that principally because God in His self-disclosure, in His revelation, has made knowledge of Himself so clear, so plain, through the works of nature, and through a revelation of Himself to our own consciences, that we are without excuse. And nevertheless, despite our clear knowledge of the righteousness of God, we have become fugitives to that righteousness. We have fled from the presence of God. We have repressed that knowledge that He has made available to us. And then Paul shows that both Jew and Gentile together have jointly repressed this knowledge of God and are equally guilty under the law before God. And then He spells out in chapter 3 the degree of our corruption and pointing to the fact that no one can be justified in the sight of God through the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh, the apostle says, will be justified. And then he explains and sets forth the grand doctrine, which is the central theme of the epistle, of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And after that, the benefits of justification, then on into sanctification, into adoption. Finally, in chapter 8, he comes to the order of salvation that began in eternity with God's decrees to elect some unto salvation, and he defends that most pointedly in chapter 9 where he uses the example of Jacob and Esau, that before either had been born, before they had done any good thing, God had decreed that the elder would serve the younger. 
and that through the mercy of God's sovereign election, Jacob was loved in a way that Esau was not. Then Paul anticipated objections that people have been giving since this letter was first received in the Christian church in the first century, that this seemed to indicate some kind of unrighteousness in God. And remember, he asked the question, what then is there unrighteousness of God? And he answered that emphatically in the negative. But notice throughout chapter 9, from the very first chapter, there is this concern about the righteousness of God. The word there in the Greek is dikaiosune, and it refers, it's sometimes translated righteousness, sometimes it's translated justification, because that whole concept of being justified in the, in the sight of God is inseparably related to the idea of God's righteousness that is made available to us by faith. And now when we come to the end of chapter 9, he looks back to the past, to the pilgrimage of Old Testament Israel, reminds us of the object lesson that we ended last week with in the case of Hosea's being required to marry a woman who was an adulteress, and how the names of her children had symbolic significance. And the one child was called Lo-Ami, which means in the Hebrew, not my people, where God had expressed His judgment against the ten tribes of Israel that had become apostate at that time, and He had declared His wrath upon them and said, you are no longer my people. But I will call those who are not my people, my people. So that the failure of one group of people became the occasion for God's exploring, or expanding, I should say, His mercy to those outside of the community. And Paul now appeals, or applies that to the Gentiles who are receiving the gospel where the Jewish people who had been the stewards of the oracles of God had missed the coming of the Messiah. And so he continues with these references to the Old Testament where he says from Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and I will call her beloved who was not beloved. Now, remember that when we think about what it means to be adopted into the family of God, it means to experience an affection from God that we have no claim upon. There is nothing in us that in the sight of God is lovely, but rather He has been pleased in His mercy to call us His people, to adopt us into His family where we have no birthright or entitlement to it. And He calls us in Christ, His beloved. Now, we need to pause for a second because as I've said repeatedly, The culture in which we live 
repeats the myth endlessly that God loves everybody equally, and that it is no big thing to be loved of God. Of course God loves us. He's a loving God, and we take for granted this divine favor upon us by the very virtue of the fact that we're human beings. God loves everybody. We're buddies, so therefore He loves us. But what Paul is saying here, reaching back into the Old Testament, to be loved of God, to be beloved by God, is a privilege, not a birthright. Inherently beloved, we have no claim on the love of God. There is nothing in me that would make Him desire me. And yet, while I have nothing of loveliness to present to Him, by His mercy, He has turned His affection to me and to all who put their trust in Christ. Again, we always must understand the mystery of the doctrine of election in terms of election being in Christ. Why are you a Christian and your neighbor isn't? Why are you redeemed and your friends aren't? As we've labored throughout this entire epistle, it's not because of any righteousness that can be found in you that is lacking in your neighbor or any righteousness that can be found in me. It is by the sheer grace of God alone. And I say, why then would He bother to redeem anybody? And the only answer I can come up with is because of the great love that the Father has for His Son. That the Father will not allow the Son to see the travail of His soul and not be satisfied. Throughout John's gospel, we see this doctrine taught from a different perspective where those who are believers are the gift that the Father gives to the Son. And it's because of the Father's love for Christ that He gives Christ a people as His legacy. And by God's mercy, we are included in that. I will call them my people who were not my people, and I will call her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass, he continues citing the Old Testament prophet, it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Not only do we participate in the family of God, but we know that God has only one Son. And yet, because God has placed us in Christ, we participate in that sonship. We are being called the sons of God who are not, by nature, children of God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, Looking back to the promise that God made to Abraham when He said that your descendants will be as the sand of the sea, as the stars of the sky. That's how many descendants there would be to Israel, countless descendants. And yet, 
out of that vast multitude of descendants of Abraham, only a remnant would actually be saved. I remember in the 18th century, theologians debated the question of whether in the final analysis the majority of human beings would be redeemed or would it be a minority? And the consensus was, based upon the teaching of Scripture, that the vast majority of people who have ever lived in this world will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That what we hope for is a remnant, a tenth, if you will, even of the household of God who will actually make it into the kingdom. You think back to the experience of Israel when God redeemed them from the oppression of the Egyptians under Pharaoh and called them His people and made them a holy nation and led them through the wilderness for 40 years. Out of that vast array of human beings, only a couple were permitted to enter the promised land. And the vast majority didn't make it. Jesus gave this warning when He said, Broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many are they who go in thereat. But straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to life. And do you remember what Jesus said? And few there be that find it. Now, when this warning about the small number of those who, in the final analysis, will be saved, was spoken by the prophet with respect to the nation of Israel. What about the Christian church? Aren't we safe by virtue of our membership in the visible church? Well, what we've learned already here in the text is that there were people outside of the commonwealth of Israel who were saved, while the people inside the nation of Israel were not, because God called a people who were no people to be His people. And we remember early on when Paul, in the opening chapters of this epistle, raised this question, that what advantage then is the Jew, since the Jews and the Greeks together were under the judgment of God. And you would think that Paul would answer that rhetorical question by saying, well, there's no advantage to being a Jew. That's not what he said. He said, much in every way. And what was the chief way? That to them were given the oracles of God. So, let me apply the same question, jump across the ages and said. What advantage is there being in the church? As Paul said of the Jews, a Jew is a Jew not who's one outwardly, but one who's one inwardly. It's not enough to be circumcised as a, an ecclesiastical ritual to get you in the kingdom of God. You have to have a circumcision of the heart. And the same thing applies to the Christian community. 
Getting, being a member of the church, being baptized, is no guarantee of redemption at all. He who is a Christian is one who is a Christian inwardly, not just externally. And having said that, then we ask the question, well, what good is it to be in the visible church, to be in worship like you are tonight? Is there any advantage to that? Yes, much in every way, because to the church has been given the oracles of God. Let me go back to St. Augustine, who was the one who really fathered the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. We've talked about this briefly before tonight, but we'll go over it again. You remember that the visible and the invisible church do not refer to two separate churches, one that you can see that's over here and one that you can't see that's over here. Now, Augustine said the distinction is made for this reason, that not everyone who is in the visible church is in the kingdom of God. Jesus warned that there would be tares growing along with the wheat, and that He warned that people can honor Him with their lips while their hearts are far from them, are far from Him, and He warned, especially at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as I've indicated earlier, that the most dreadful warning He gives is that on the last day many will come to Him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in Your name? Didn't we do that in Your name? And Jesus is going to say to them, please leave. I don't know who you are. I never knew you. You say, what do you mean you never knew me? I was baptized. I grew up in the church. I went through catechism class. I was confirmed, I was married in the church, I was a deacon in the church, I taught Sunday school in the church, I had a Sunday school pin for perfect attendance over 20 years, I did all of those things, I even preached. He said, what's your name? I don't recognize you. You who are workers of lawlessness. Now there the warning was given to people in the visible church who were not redeemed. And so, it's a, it's a very dangerous way to gain assurance of our status before God by looking to our church membership as any proof of our inclusion in the kingdom of God. And Augustine says, you can count the people in the visible church. Their names are on the roll. I can look out here, and I can see all these people sitting here tonight. I, what I can't see is your soul. I can't read your heart. You can't see my soul. You can't see my heart. I don't know if underneath the surface of your skin that you have a real affection for Christ. I don't know if you're trusting in Him and in Him alone for your redemption. I know this, that if you do have an affection for Him, and that if you are trusting Him and Him alone for your redemption, then you're certainly in the invisible church. Now, the state of your soul is invisible to me, but it's manifestly visible to God. Again, we're told we look on the outward appearances, but God looks on the heart. So, He knows everyone 
who is in his adopted family. He knows who they are. He knows whether you're in a state of grace in a way that I cannot possibly know. And so Augustine said, we distinguish between the visible church and the invisible church. The invisible church is the true church. It's the full number of those who are redeemed. Now, Augustine was asked this question, where do you find the invisible church? And he said, almost totally, not quite, but almost totally within the visible church. It's possible, it's remotely possible to be a true believer in Christ and not be involved in the visible church. I don't think that can happen for very long. If you're truly in Christ and you're in the Word of God, you know it is your duty to be a part of the visible fellowship of the people of God. And so, if your heart is really in tune with God, you will sooner or later, and in most cases sooner, unite yourself with the visible church. But for the we think of the thief on the cross who died before he had that opportunity. He was never a member of a visible church, but he was a member of the invisible church because he was providentially hindered from ever joining a visible church. But again, if the, being a member of the visible church doesn't guarantee your redemption, why bother? The same reason for Israel, because it's in the church that the means of grace are concentrated. Where else can you go to hear an exposition of the Word of God? That doesn't, that's not on the, on, on the loudspeaker at the supermarket. You're not going to hear it in the halls of Congress. You're not going to find it out there except as it is found in the church. And I realize that there are churches all over this country, all over this world, that have an absolute hostility to the Word of God. And you can go to these churches week after week after week and never experience the means of grace. Yet, it is in the visible church that the means of grace are most heavenly, heavily concentrated. It was Augustine who said, he who does not have the church for his mother does not have God for his father. That's an overstatement. You can be led to Christ outside the church. I was led to Christ outside the church, but I was nurtured by the church and in the church by the ministry of the church. And we must never despair of the church because there is where the remnant is found. And Isaiah said before, Paul goes on, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed. See, if there weren't a remnant, if after the plant was burned down, after the crops were destroyed, if there were no seeds that spilled out from the core of the flowers or from the grain, no seed that could be planted again, then the harvest would end forever. 
But when God brings His judgment even upon Israel, there remains a seed that will bring forth its fruit in its season. And the prophet said, if God didn't leave us the seed, we would all end up like Sodom and Gomorrah, where God made short work of those cities when He visited them with His judgment. So now, Paul gives us another rhetorical question. What shall we say then? What is our response to that grim history of Old Testament Israel? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. Here we are receiving the benefits of the gospel when we never even sought it. It was not our nature to pursue the things of God. The Gentiles to which Paul is writing here in Rome, they had no clue about the history of redemption. They weren't concerned with studying the Old Testament Scriptures. They could care less about the law of Moses. They were not pursuing the righteousness of God. And yet, in God's mercy, what they were not pursuing, they found. Several years ago, there was a national campaign of evangelism that was titled, I Found It. And you saw bumper stickers in the city of Atlanta and in other major cities in America, I found it, I found it. He didn't find anything. He found you. You weren't looking. You weren't pursuing. But by His grace, He pursued you. And you were the one who was found. That's the message of of the Christian. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Not because I found it, but because He found me. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they weren't looking for justification. They attained to justification, the justification is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. What's wrong with this picture? Why, Paul said, how can that be that those who were not in this redemptive historical covenant community have found the pearl of great price, while those who were there who had the benefits of the oracles of God missed it? He came to His own. And they received Him not. The one whom God appointed to be the cornerstone of His house, the cornerstone of the kingdom of God, became a stumbling block, the stone of offense. Israel tripped over grace They fell over their Messiah because they couldn't fathom the idea that they couldn't receive God's favor through their own righteousness. And as the multitudes of is in Israel sought the righteousness of God through their own 
endeavor through their own good works and miss the kingdom of God and miss the Messiah. So that same error is deeply ingrained in churches all over the world. I venture to say to you that at least, at the very least, 80% of people who are members of Christian churches in our country really believe that they can get to heaven through their own good works. We were involved in evangelism explosion years ago in Cincinnati, and I trained over 200 people, and we went out twice a week, and we tabulated the results of people when we asked them the, the uh, diagnostic questions. You know the diagnostic question. The first one is, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for sure that when you die, you'll go to heaven? We asked literally thousands of people that question, and the overwhelming majority of people who were asked that question answered by saying, no, they were not sure. In fact, they didn't think you could be sure. And beyond that, they were suspicious of people who thought they were sure. And that only opens up the discussion for the second diagnostic question, which was so far more important, which question was, well, if you were to die tonight and stood before God, and God said to you, why should I allow you into my heaven, what would you say? And again, 90% of the people we asked that question to gave what we called a works righteousness answer. People would say, well, I tried to live a good life, or I went to church, or I gave my money to this cause, or I did that, and I did this. And only one out of ten would say, why should you let me into your heaven No reason inherently, Lord, except that you promised that if I put my trust in your Son and in Him alone, that you would bring me into your family. And that's my only hope in life and death. Not in my own righteousness, but in His. Hasn't this been the issue all the way through this book? Whose righteousness matters? Whose righteousness justifies not your own. And this was the thing that was the tragedy for the Jewish nation, is that they sought the kingdom of God based on their own righteousness. And they missed their Messiah. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. They stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, again from the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, but whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. But Israel was offended by the rock. They were ashamed of a suffering servant. But those who put their trust in that stumbling block and didn't trip over him are the ones, Paul tells us, quoting Isaiah, who will not be put to shame. Now, at the beginning of chapter 10, Paul reaffirms the 
statement that he had made earlier when he said that his heart's desire was for his people according to the flesh. Now he says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. My heart is heavy, the apostle sang. I love my kinsmen according to the flesh. My deepest desire is that they would all be saved. And I recognize they're zealous for religion. They never miss the meetings in the synagogue. They have a zeal for God, but their zeal is based upon ignorance. You know, a definition of a fanatic is somebody who has lost sight of where he is going, redoubles his effort to get there. He's full of zeal but he has no knowledge or understanding of what he's zealous about. Let's go back for a second to Romans 1, which really formed the foundation for this entire argument that Paul follows throughout this lengthy epistle, that he said that after God reveals himself manifestly and clearly to everyone in the creation… And after people repress or suppress that knowledge of God, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and served and worshiped the creature rather than creator. The judge rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The judgment that Paul announces that is on the human race is not because the human race is given to atheism. What provokes the judgment of God, beloved, is religion. false religion, the religion whose object of zeal and devotion is an idol, where the truth of God is traded in, it's swapped for the creature who alone is worthy, or for the God who alone is worthy of our adoration and devotion and service. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to be a zealot. Who were the most zealous people in Jerusalem when Jesus appeared on the scene? The Pharisees, the scribes, They spent their whole lives pursuing righteousness. That's what it meant to be a Pharisee, to be a separated one, somebody who was consecrated to the pursuit of righteousness. And when their righteousness came into the midst to redeem them, they killed them because they were looking for justification by works. And they stumbled over Jesus. 
they didn't realize that they had to give up any claim to merit, to give up all boasting, and to say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I have no righteousness to offer God, save that righteousness that has been won for me by His Son. Oh, they were zealous, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and then seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. Being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. What do you mean to establish? To construct it. To make that the foundation of their standing before God, to build their house upon the foundation of their own merit, of their own goodness. That's how they wanted to do it. And you know, that's how we want to do it by nature. Grace is for the weak. I experienced it just this morning. Clement uh, went over to Germany recently, and I, he told me he was going to go and visit Wittenberg, the place of Luther. And he says, can I get anything for you? Well, I said, oh, yes, please, Clement. I said, when you're over there, would you do me a favor? And he said, what? I said, would you, could you get me some of those paperback uh, copies of Perry Mason, Earl Stanley Gardner, in German? Because that's the easiest way to keep the languages up by reading these simple dialogue stories that we're familiar with, enough with the English behind it that it's an easy way to study languages. I said, can you pick up a couple of those for me? Sure, says Clement. So he comes in the church and he's got this bag of stuff for me. And I said, what's that? And he has all these books in there of, of Perry Mason. And I said, great. Get reacquainted with Della Street and, and uh, the rest of the team. And I said, now, how much did you spend on that? And he said, no, no, no. He says, uh, you can't pay me for that. This is my gift. And I, I really felt terrible. I said to my wife, I said, you know, I asked him to get me those books. And he did, and now he won't let me pay for them. See, he wanted to be gracious, but I wanted to pay my own way. Are you like that? Let other people ride into the kingdom on Jesus' coattails. Thank you very much. I'll do it myself because I have enough righteousness of my own to enter into the kingdom. No. It's hard to rely on grace and grace alone because it's the end of boasting. You have no more bragging rights. The only thing you can boast in is the perfection of the Redeemer. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God, Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, I've said, we've said, Burke has said, 
You know, almost every Sunday we read one of the Ten Commandments in the liturgy of our worship service, and some people have asked, why in the world do you read the law? The law isn't going to save anybody. Why do you put the law in front of us all the time? Because if you don't listen to the law, you'll never see your need for the gospel. The end of the law, the goal of the law, the purpose of the law is Christ. The purpose, the goal, the end of the law was never given by God as a way for you to attain status in His family. The law was given to show you the righteousness of God and to be a mirror that you can look into, you can see the perfect righteousness of God, and by comparison see yourself, warts and all, and despair of your own righteousness. And the law sends you packing. It sends you rushing to the cross. It sends you running for all of your worth for grace. Because what the law does is exposes your sin. And anything that exposes my sin screams to me of my need for the Savior, whose righteousness alone can justify. And so Paul said, this is the tragedy of the people that he loves. They missed it. They sought the righteousness of God through their own obedience to the law, rather than seeing that the goal of the law, the purpose of the law, was Christ and His righteousness that can never be earned, can never be bought, can never be deserved, but can only be trusted by faith and by faith alone. I hope that every member of this congregation has a heart that is on fire with zeal. Jesus warned those who were neither hot nor cold but were lukewarm. He said, I'll spew you out of my mouth. He wants His people to be on fire. He wants His people to be filled with zeal but a zeal that is according to knowledge, a zeal that is informed by His Word, that that fire that is in our hearts is a fire that is not just heat, but it is also light, which light comes from His Word. Let's pray. Father, who are we who are no people, with nothing to commend ourselves, that we should be called Your children, that we should be the objects of Your affection? Nothing in this world can display Your graciousness more than that that You would love the unlovely, 
that you would call us your sons and daughters when by nature we are children of wrath. Father, help us to despair forever of any hope of earning our way into your favor, into your house, or into your kingdom, but that we might seek that righteousness that is in Christ that is received by faith, that our trust may be in Him and in Him alone, now and forevermore. Amen.